Amen. Thank you so much. If you weren't having a good time in worship today, Aaron was, and uh, I appreciate that. It's contagious. Take your Bibles, if you would. If you'd find the Old Testament passage of 1 Samuel chapter 24 on the Bible you have brought on your smartphone. Some Bibles are underneath the chairs, but uh, we'd love for you to have one. And we're going to begin reading verses 1 through 7 here in just a moment. And But uh, we'll be looking at other parts of the chapter as well. Uh, it is... It's a new beginning for us, and uh, you first graders got their Bibles. One of the visions that we have believe the Lord has given to us is that we'll be better disciples and continue to be even more so people of the book. First Bible, first graders getting Bibles. You say, well, are all those first graders? We had a bunch in the first service as well, so uh, evidence of a uh, growing children's ministry. We appreciate Jennifer and our children's ministry and all our ministries as well. But one of the things that we're doing, you've got it in your bulletin if you picked one up. If not, you can go on your website and look, 100 days of Bible reading and prayer. We encourage you. We've got uh, suggestions for you to read. If you follow along with us, we'll do a couple of 100 days of those each during the church here. Uh, we will have read through the Bible together by the time we get to 2025. So uh, now, if you want to rebel and read your own, that's okay also. So that'd be all right. But uh, well, we hope this does, as it has done already. We've done a couple of these before, that uh, this leads to discussion in the hallways and classrooms and family members. This is what I read today. This is what I received, and this is how we can make application. We encourage you to do that. And prayer, I'm, uh, I'm going to change my prayer uh, uh, format for the next 100 days anyway. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it with this. I'm trying to make it simple, though it hopefully stays simple, but uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for one. Times seven. I'm going to pray for one. I'm going to pray as part of my prayer, praise and thanksgiving for the one Savior, Jesus, the Almighty God and Savior. Praise and prayer for Him. One. We've done a year-long emphasis on who's your one. Be praying for at least one person who is lost or unchurched that they'll come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior, have a growing relationship. Pray for who's your one. If you don't have a who's your one, well, that's your prayer. Lord, give me one that I can be praying for. Pray for your one family. Pray for your one church. Everybody needs one church. If you don't have one, come on. Look, be a part of us. It's okay. Pray for your one church. You want to pray for this one world in which the Lord has given us and uh, that the Lord will be revealed. We'll take care of God's world. Pray for that we will be one nation under God. Truly revival take place in the world in which we live. And then you want to pray that you'll be one in Christ. Now, those things, we just give them to you. You don't have to remember one, but maybe something. But if you see me prayer walking and you saw them, see me moving fingers, you'll, I'm not counting steps. But uh, so encourage you with those certainly as well. Today, we're continuing our series as we look in that David about uh, he's still king, bring on the giants. And so we're in this. And if you're, if you're joining us today, you've been away, come back first time, whatever it is, good. I mean, we're glad you're here. And we want you to come join in us with this series. And uh, as we uh, walk through the life of David and learn lessons about how we can overcome our giants, all of those things. First Samuel chapter 24, let's first read just the first seven verses. It says this, When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave and the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand 
and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart, heart was struck because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose and left the cave and went on his way. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word today. Uh, the Auburn University basketball team played basketball in Israel this month. That just can't be. First of all, basketball, this is August, basketball is still a few months away. And uh, then to play in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, does Israel even have basketball teams? Well, apparently they do. As a matter of fact, one of them seemed to be pretty good. But I thought it was pretty amazing to see Coach Bruce Pearl and the Auburn University basketball team singing in Bethlehem, walking through Jerusalem, sailing on the Sea of Galilee and talking about the spiritual experiences being feeling closer to God than they've ever felt before. And there they were. They were walking where Jesus walked and talked about praying where Jesus prayed, being baptized where Jesus was baptized. How amazing is that? I thought uh, I may still have a couple of years of eligibility left. So if they go back again, I'm thinking about trying out, maybe being a walk-on. But uh, they also came to the Dead Sea, lowest place on earth. The Dead Sea is a popular tourist attraction. A lot of people go there, but not many people live there because it is a, well, the name Dead Sea probably gives the reason why, but it's a, it's a desert area. Lots of rocks and hills and cliffs around the Dead Sea, so not a lot of people, not a, a lot of people live there. Called the Dead Sea because nothing can live in the Dead Sea, of course, that uh, it is uh, full of uh, Salt and saline, sometimes called the salt sea, has like five or six times more salt than any ocean that there is, and nothing can live there. And, uh, and you, can't, you can't sink in the Dead Sea. And so pretty amazing also see the Auburn University basketball team all floating in the Dead Sea. I think one of the players, I'm not sure which one, said, well, I can't swim. Well, he was in luck because you can't sink there in the... Uh, Dead Sea. Well, all around the Dead Sea, virtual desert hills, caves, and rocks. This is the place that David and his men were hiding from King Saul. Did you note the transition there from the story to this story? Good. King Saul had heard that David and his men were in the desert of En Gedi. And Saul got together 3,000 of his choicest men from around Israel, and they're on their way into uh, search for David near. In fact, that 1 Samuel chapter 24 and verse 2 in the NIV calls the place where David was, calls it the crags of the wild goats. Now I want you to think about where David is hanging out there. It's not uh, Happy Valley. It's not uh, the rolling hills. It's not the green metal subdivision. No, but David is hiding out in a place called crags of the wild goats. A crags, a steep, rugged cliff or rock. Now here was David. Youngest son of a well-known man from the small town of Bethlehem. He is a great musician. He has been called in by the king in order to be the personal musician for the king. He become his armor bearer. And then in one of the greatest challenges of all history, maybe the most well-known in all of history, David defeats Goliath. He becomes the commander of the Lord's armies or of the Israeli 
uh, army. They sing songs about him. They dance for him when he comes in. He is beloved by all of Israel. And here he is now slumming or hiding out in caves. Thus the reference to the title of the cave man. But specifically he's called, he's in a place called Crags of the Wild Goats. I thought that's a great name maybe for a saloon or a honky tonk. Maybe out in the middle of nowhere. Probably the place where your car is going to break down right in front of. I'm just wondering if David ever thought to himself, how in the world did I ever get here? Does God know where I am? Let's take this opportunity to learn what to do when life takes a turn for the worse. David's at the edge of the Dead Sea. He's physically at the lowest place on earth. Maybe not so vague an illustration or a metaphor for where he is in this season of life on the run as a fugitive from King Saul with 3,000 Israeli army in hot pursuit. Your, your situation may be not quite as dire, but maybe you've had or will have, or even today, experience a low point in your life. Regardless, you want to be prepared because we know that life has its ups and downs. And if anybody ever went from the penthouse to the outhouse, well, it was David, some pun intended, as we've read and even see further. But here's an important thing for you to know when you are at a low point or season or a desperate season in your life. Be assured God knows and sees you. Be assured God knows and sees you. No matter where you are, no matter what you are going through, through whether it's through no fault of your own or because you've made lousy decisions and because you're in a sinful place, you could still know that God knows he sees you, He cares for you, and He's never stopped loving you. Even if the Lord does not seem close, even if He seems far away, you can know that He is really close, and that's the reason Jesus has come, so that He might prove that to be true, that He's always near. If you're a child of God and the follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to know that you have been chosen, a chosen vessel for God. You've been known by God that you are going to be in the his kingdom before the foundations of the world. The New Testament says that you're part of a royal priesthood. In royalty, you are a child of the king. As a priest, you have access to the throne. You have access to approach Christ with confidence and boldness to help you in your time of need. You can worship God night and day. You can come to God's word. It is available to you. While it's available to all the world, if you have Christ in you, you have the Holy Spirit living in you so that you might be able to understand some of the deep mysteries of God and about God's Word that is available to all those who seek Him. One day, and not until we are with Christ, will we be able to know all mysteries. But we know Jesus has promised you, if you're a follower of Jesus, that He will be with you. He'll never forsake you. And you can always know, and you can always depend on Him. And one day we realize we're going to be with Jesus forever in heaven. We're going to reign with Him on high. I'm not exactly sure what that's going to look like or what that means, but hey, it sounds pretty good. But meanwhile, while we're in this life and all these things are true, sometimes in this world in which we live, life does not always turn out the way that we hoped or dreamed, and even sometimes through no fault of our own. Hey, David was innocent of all charges. His only charge was that he was the chosen king of Israel, the anointed king and Saul was not. At least he was not anymore. Here's what you need to remember and be assured. God knows and sees you. He's not left you. I'm glad to know that we have a couple of chapters here that we're going to be able to look at that we know that we can follow and we can see that David's going to be a good example for us. You know, if it were not for the Psalms, it would, we would think that probably David never complained. I mean, but uh, 
because of the Psalms, we know that sometimes the complaints are in the Psalms. In fact, he turned complaining into an art form. After all, David didn't complain, at least as far as we know, to his family, to his friends, to his fellow soldiers. He took his complaints to God. In some of the Psalms, even that David wrote, if you've read through them, and I know that you have because I've had discussions with many of you about that, that sometimes the Psalms seem kind of negative. Where are you, God? Where, what are you up to? Remember me. But then most every Psalm, at least it concludes or in, in, has in the Psalm the fact that God is faithful. He remembers me. He gives me victory over my enemy. I need not fear. Where's David? He's in a cave. Do you know one of the Psalms that David wrote while he was in the cave? Or at least on the reflection of the time he was in the cave was Psalm 57. We've got verse 4 from you from that psalm. Listen to what David wrote. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Lord, I feel like I'm surrounded. They're about to come and devour me. And listen, they're talking bad about me too. Uh, sounds like a complaint that he brings to God. Well, verses 1 through 3, though, says this. He begins that psalm. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge in the shadow of your wings. I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He'll put to shame him who tramples me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. He brought his complaints to... You know what? It, it might seem a little bit out of sorts for, for us, but if we're understanding what David is telling us, God's the complaint department. You got some complaints about life or your status or circumstances? I want to encourage you today before this hour is over that you are ready and you will take your complaints to God. And then I also want you to be ready and I want you to be prepared to do whatever God says and allow God to be able to change your heart and you submit to Him. This could be a breakthrough day for you and for me as we pay attention to God's Word. Before we get too far into the story, you also need to know, waiting on God may be difficult, but necessary for you. Waiting on God may be difficult, but necessary for you. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit, meaning that you may not already be born with patience, but it is something that can be produced in a believer's life. Perseverance is being steadfast and faithful even when difficult. While we are most often asking God to change our circumstances or change our situation, the Lord most often wants to change our heart. It, it's the old adage, Jesus didn't save you to make you happy, but he saved you to make you holy. Now, for those of us who are Bible-believing Jesus lovers, we'd kind of like to be happy and holy, wouldn't we? Well, when it comes, though, to happiness or holiness, holiness always trumps Happiness so that we might be more like Jesus and be more like God because happiness can be fleeting. But joy, knowing that we're in the hands of Jesus, is always possible. Pursuing Jesus produces another fruit of the Spirit, joy that we might be, have in every situation. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. He said, not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. Now, we could spend a lot of time on this particular verse, but rejoice is the same word for the word joy, that you can't have joy in your suffering. It does not mean that we're going to be ecstatic or we're going to applaud every time that we go through some suffering. 
but we can have joy in the suffering. Why? Because we know that suffering produces endurance. Endurance is another word for perseverance. And perseverance or endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts to the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. David shows great character during this season of hiding out in caves. He and his men of about 400, going to be 600 soon, are hiding in a cave near the Dead Sea. They're in that cave known as the Crags of the Wild Goats. And King Saul, after his latest battle with the Philistines, pursued his greatest obsession, which is pursuit in the extermination of David and his men. And he gets word that David is in the wilderness of Engedi, and while searching, the king takes a break. And yes, I think you heard it right. Saul, the scripture says, went into the cave to relieve himself. Does that mean what you think it means? It does. The Hebrew literally means to cover one's feet, which is a euphemism for going to the restroom. Uh, do you know the difference between a Western restroom and an Eastern restroom, Western Hemisphere and Eastern Hemisphere. Still, in many parts of undeveloped countries today, whether it's in the East or the Middle East or in Africa today, the difference is in many places, there's not one. And you've just got to make do. You've got to take care of whatever it is that you take care of. If you live in the East, if you're a Westerner visiting the East, you just simply try not to stare. And... Uh, my God, I had this whole thing about men on the golf course too, but it came out a little crass, so I'm just to skip that. But King Saul is the king, so at least he goes into a cave. What are the odds of King Saul walking into the same cave when nature calls where David and his men are gathered? Scripture says that they're sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. Now, let's talk for just a moment about what David and his men did for those 10 years while they were on the run before David became king. We know from other chapters in the Bible and in 1 Samuel, we know that they became protectors of the Israelites, particularly who are living out in the countryside, protecting them from enemies and marauders. In fact, the very next chapter, chapter 25, which is about Abigail and his foolish husband, we know that David... And his men, they protected all of uh, Abigail's husband's uh, crops and animals and all of those things. And uh, we talked about Abigail on Mother's Day and kind of in preparation actually for this very series. But even when David was in the land of the Philistines, pretending to be friends with the Philistines or allies of the Philistines, he and his men would go out on secret missions in order to be able to take care of the enemies of Israel. The point being... If you feel you're in a waiting season, this is no time to just sit, but it is time to be faithful in all that God would have you to do. Combat the enemy of sin and temptation and the evils of this world with the pursuit of Jesus, regardless of your season of life. See, waiting is not about sitting and letting time pass by, but it's about willing to watch God work. Meanwhile, back at the cave, David and his men surely can't believe their eyes when they seen King Saul come into their cave alone and away from the company of the soldiers. You may be like me. You may be or like the men of David may be thinking, uh, this is not just a coincidence. Uh, God has brought 
King Saul in here for the very purpose that perhaps at least the men were thinking at that time. For they said, notice again in verse 4, David's men thought, Here's the day in which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Well, it sounds like a prophecy come true, doesn't it? There are some passages in the Old Testament concerning David that sound similar to what they said, but it is not exact. And David hears his men, and without saying a word, he stealthily, is the word that's used in Scripture, makes his way to Saul. He pulls out his knife or his sword. And the men are astonished at what happens next, because at that very moment, David could have taken care of Saul. He could have stopped all of their running and all of their hiding. Could have walked out of that cave a hero because he was beloved by all the people. He could have taken on the kingdom at that very moment. That would have been much easier. But instead, and to the amazement of his men, he cut off a hem of the royal robe and later felt guilty about it. Because he thought it showed disrespect to the Lord's anointed king. But it did represent the fact that the royalty was being taken away from King Saul. And it was going to be in the hands of King David. But if David's not going to do the deed. He had a whole bunch of men, all of them ready to be able to take care of Saul. Who was by himself and not knowing that the army was there. After all, remember who these men were. They were the ones who were in debt. They were the ones who were discontent. They were the ones who were bitter because of Saul's kingdom. They've been glad to take care of Saul. It says here in the scripture that David persuaded them with his words and did not permit them to attack Saul. The word for persuaded means to forcefully persuade with words, not with action, but with words. Kind of like the lawyer Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird when he stood up for his defendant when the men of the town came to lynch the client, Tom Robinson. David may have said something like, if you want to come and take the king, you're going to have to come through me. Persuasive words. And if you don't know who lawyer Atticus Finch is, feel free to pick up a book and read it sometime. Two reasons David did not kill King Saul, who was out to kill him, or allow his men to. One was because the Bible says, thou shalt not murder. But also because he was the Lord's anointed. Saul was the, had been appointed by God, and it was in God's hands and not David's. There's an important lesson for all, particularly when life takes a turn for the worst. Avoid any shortcut that sidestep God's word or God's way. Avoid any shortcuts that sidestep God's word or God's way. You, you will be faced with choices in your life to do things God's way that will follow God's word and you know his will. Or to follow your way because it is, seems to be easier, but definitely it is not better. Or even sometimes we may think that we're helping God out by doing it our way. Or sometimes we misrepresent or as David's men did misquote or misapply God's word. God will never ask you to do something that will not be consistent with his word and consistent with his way for your pathway that he has for you and his plans for you. In other words, the ends do not justify the means. Abraham was told to be the father of many nations. His wife, Sarah, was barren. They were elderly in age. As time went on, Sarah decided that she would give Abraham her handmaiden, Hagar. She had a son, Ishmael, but this was not God's way to fulfill the promise. 
Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. He was taken by the devil to be able to see all the nations of the world. And Satan told him, said, if you'll bow down and worship me, that all of these nations will be yours. It may really not sound like to us like it would have been a temptation for Jesus, but only Jesus knew all that he would have to go through in order to be able to free us from sin and from hell. But Jesus said, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you worship. The very next verse says, The devil left and the angels came. Pretty good lesson. If we want to know what is God and what is of the devil, we better be people of the book and trust that God knows what he's doing. How else did David know when King Saul walked into his cave and a man said, This is from God. Now's your time. Take your shot. David, the caveman at that time, did not do what was easier. He did what was harder. He let King Saul live. How does that young Christian girl know? I mean, the one who met the guy at the party and swears that, oh, we looked at each other exact same time at the party and we began to talk. And, oh, he likes everything that I like. We had so much in common. We talked all night. And besides that, he just looks so dreamy. This must be the one that God has for me. Except that he does not know Jesus. And he does not share the same values. The Bible says, do not be unequally yoked. How about that Christian Family man or that businessman has really been struggling financially and is praying for the Lord to be able to intervene. But suddenly the deal comes along that's really going to put them on easy street. They can even give more to the church. But there's some shady parts of this deal. And he's going to have to make some promises he knows he's not going to be able to keep. And there are going to be others who will be hurt financially as well by this. But can this still be God's answer? Well, the Bible says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Work as if you're working for the Lord and not man. Must be okay for me to leave my husband because of the strong spark I have with this new guy at work that is so perfect. Could this possibly be God's will? It must be okay for me to buy this new fill in the blank because it's on sale today only. And on this very day, I also got a a letter in the mail that says I got a, can get a new credit card with only 25% interest. This can't be just coincidence. It must be God's will. It's our dream home. It's the one that we've always wanted and always prayed for. Look, God has given it to us. So what if we have to both work 80 hours a week and we can no longer give to the church because of our increasing debt? Can we conclude that our desires and our circumstances are not necessarily good indicators of finding God's will? Martin Luther said this, all sin begins with disbelief. In other words, I don't really believe that God's way is best. I don't really believe it's correct or that He can be trusted with what is best for me. See, for the more faith you have, the easier it is to not sin and to follow God. David decided he would trust God's plan and God's promises. When Saul left the cave, David followed him. And from afar, he said these words. We'll read some of them. Let's just read verses 8 through 11. It says, Afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. 
uh, and did not kill you. You may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. And we'll stop right there. David's trust in God influenced his actions toward others and particularly toward King Saul. More often than not, when life takes a turn for the worse, it involves others. So this is what you need to do, what you and I, you do unto others as Jesus has done unto you. You've heard the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This is the platinum rule. Do as Jesus has done unto you. And this lesson becomes a important part of the story and application. Even you when you feel justified for returning evil to evil or hope something bad happens to somebody who's done something to you, in light of the cross of Christ and the Lord Jesus and what He has done, we see people differently when we look through the eyes of Jesus. Or we see them differently because of what Jesus Christ has done for us and His forgiveness for us because we did not deserve His forgiveness. Listen to how Saul responded to David's plea. And when he found out that David had an opportunity to take his life, we'll look at verse 16. 1 Samuel chapter 24 and verse 16. And it says, As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You're more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And verse 18 says, And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. Boy, he may have been sincere in the things he was saying at that time, but he truly was not repentant. But David forgave him anyway and put him in God's hands. We remember the words of the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32 that says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, even as Jesus Christ forgave you. In the ESV it says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted as well. Sometimes when life takes a turn for the worse, it has to do with something someone has done to you. Can I tell you this? Life's not going to get any better until you decide that you're willing to forgive someone who has wronged you. Even if they're not asking for forgiveness, even if they're, they certainly wouldn't deserve forgiveness or wouldn't be forgiveness, even if they do not even know that they have done wrong. I came across this. It's, it's just a list about forgiveness is. Uh, in a book, it's called Breaking Down the Walls, and uh, I've adapted it maybe for us here today, and, and there's a few, you won't be able to write them all down, but the last one I want you to write down, but, but it's, I, I think this might be the worth the price of submission if you've got a couple of more minutes with us today. Then this is it. Forgiveness is fully releasing another of a debt, even if they don't know it. Forgiveness does not mean the offense was not wrong, Forgiveness does not mean that you can forget, but you've chosen not to hold the offense against them any longer. I remember my dad saying often, if you could forget, you wouldn't have to forgive. Forgiveness is an act of your will. It's something that you've got to decide to do. Forgiveness is also impossible without the power of Jesus in you. And forgiveness does not excuse, endorse, or embrace the wrong. If you notice at the very end of this passage, Saul, of this chapter, Saul went on his way and David went back into the stronghold. He forgave him, but he wasn't going to put himself in the line of fire. If you've got an abuser in the home, an abuser, uh, you can forgive that abuser. It doesn't mean you need to stay in that home. If you've got an abuser in your life, it doesn't mean you need to stay with that abuser. You can still forgive, find help, tell someone. And this is the one you want to write down. Forgiveness is choosing to see your offender with different eyes. 
It is looking at others as Jesus looks at them. And it's looking at others through eyes that have been forgiven. Because regardless of what someone has done to you, it pales in comparison to what we have done to the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has done for us. I, fi- I figure as long as we're trying to make these lessons applicable, let's really do it. Did anybody tell you this was going to be easy? It would have been for easier for David had he taken Saul's life. It'd be easier for us maybe to continue to sin, to not forgive. It'd not be better, but it'd be easier. But we do not do these things because they are easy. Easy. Yes, David was a step above. Yes, we are called to be different. We are called to be a step above. It's so easy, even a caveman can do it. It refers to sin and disobedience. Is that, is that too old a reference? Everybody, anybody have? In my world, sometimes I often heard said it's so easy, even a preacher could do it. Okay, maybe I'm the one that made that up. But not taking a shortcut, doing things God's way, persevering by being faithful in difficult times, that's harder. But the payoff is much better. It's being more like Jesus. It's being one with Him. You know, there's a similar story told in chapter 26 of 1 Samuel about when David continues to pursue. So obviously he wasn't sincere. He continued to pursue David. And David finds Saul in his camp and everybody's asleep in his camp and he sneaks into his camp. Could have killed him again, but he picked up his spear and took his spear to show him later that he could have killed him at that time. Got a question in your notes. What's David's greatest victory? It's grace. It is the fact that God had called him, and it's only by God's grace, and choosing to demonstrate grace. Grace, David was not called by God because of his talents or his gifts or what was in his heart, but simply at God's choosings because of God's grace. In his greatest act or victory in life, many would go straight to David and Goliath. Maybe some would go when he took over the kingdom. I think. I always thought one of his greatest acts was the fact that he raised up an army of giant killers when there was no giant killers before David came on the scene. Maybe it was when he overtook Jerusalem. But no, all those pale in comparison to the grace that was given him and the grace that he demonstrated by not taking the life of his greatest adversary, the one who meant him the most harm, even when he was at his very lowest. Physically, he was at his lowest Point perhaps, lowest point on earth there at the Dead Sea, living in caves at the crags of Goat Cave. But he was not at his lowest point spiritually. If your circumstances have you at a low point, physically or financially or career-wise or relationally or whatever it may be, it does not have to be your low point spiritually. For it may be like David, you are at that place so that it may be a test and a growth in faith and character. One of the reasons that the Dead Sea is dead because the Jordan River flows into the Dead Sea, but nothing flows out of the Dead Sea, and the water evaporates, leaving salt and other elements behind. Some people are at a low point spiritually because of a heart that only looks for everything to flow to them, and nothing flows out. It's an old illustration. The Dead Sea represents a selfish heart. What more can I have? What can people do for me? Even what can God do for me? But still not place their faith, their repentance, or love for God. Saul probably represents a Dead Sea kind of heart. So what can you and I do at all times 
but especially when things have not turned out the way it planned. Love God more. Love other people more. Be quick to forgive, slow to anger, submit and follow God. But if you really want to make a difference, you're in a tough time and you really want to make a difference, find somebody that does not know Jesus and love them like Jesus loves you. Find somebody that has not a clue about grace and show them grace. Then, when life takes a turn for the worse, you can be at your best. So what's your greatest victory? (laughs) It's the same. It's grace. Because you have been given grace. It is the free gift that we accept by faith for all those who know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And it's demonstrating grace toward others. If you have not experienced the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ today, you don't know that you have Christ in your heart or home in heaven. Then today I encourage you, even this very hour, even this moment, be calling upon Him. Ask Christ to forgive you of all your sins. Ask Jesus to come and accept the free gift of grace. Let's bow together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you now recognizing all that you have done for us. And because of what you have done, it causes us to look at other people and our situation and our circumstances through the different eyes, through the eyes of Jesus. And Father, help us to sometimes be patient and await upon you and watch how the Lord's going to be at work and not do things our own way, but do things only your way. We pray, Father, that we might be able to demonstrate the grace that you have shown to us, to others. Help us to forgive because you've forgiven us. Help us to be kind and compassionate and loving because that's what you've shown us. Father, we pray if there's one here today, one listening today that does not know you as Lord and Savior, that today might be the day of salvation, that they can call upon you, can trust in you as Lord and Savior. It's in Jesus' name we lift these prayers. Amen.